the title of the message this evening in John 13, A Disciple's Commandment. We recall uh, from two weeks ago that we are going to be going through numerous messages with Jesus Christ speaking specifically to those 11 disciples that followed Him who were in Him and He in them. You say, Pastor, there were 12 disciples. Well, certainly there were 12. But we recall from last time, Jesus Christ speaking to the twelve, He said in verse 11 of chapter 13, Ye are not all clean. Speaking of the reality that Judas Iscariot had never truly accepted the person and work of Jesus Christ, though he had followed Jesus Christ for some two and a half years or so, there had never been a point where he had believed the works of Jesus Christ, believed the words of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Following Jesus Christ for two plus years, seeing the miracles, seeing the loaves and fishes multiplied, being on the boat that's being tossed to and from on the Sea of Galilee, and seeing Jesus Christ walking on that tempestuous sea, stepping into the boat, the sea is calm, you're in Capernaum like that. All of the things that Judas saw. Can you imagine seeing a man rise from the dead? All of these things that Judas Iscariot saw and yet he did not believe. Wow. And so Jesus said, you are not all clean. We recall from two weeks ago, Jesus transitions into the next lesson for His disciples. This expectation of washing Feet, as I have done, so do ye. The servant is not greater than his master. All of those things that we saw, that commission, the example that Jesus Christ gave. Jesus then told his disciples that there would be one that betrayed him or would betray him. Jesus told his disciples this according to verse 19 so that when it came to pass, They would learn, they would understand that Jesus is God, that He knew what was happening, that He was in control, that He laid His life down willingly, and most importantly, that He did so according to the will of the Father. The Spirit of Jesus became noticeably troubled after this point as we step into John 13.21. That verse says, When Jesus had thus said, He was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. The disciples were shocked and confused by this. How could any of them betray Jesus? How could any of them not believe He was Messiah? How could any of them sell Him into the hand of sinners? And so we see a new example of the same lesson that we've seen all throughout the book of John. We we recall the parallel themes that are running throughout the book. The theme of belief by grace through faith, belief on Jesus Christ unto salvation, and the theme of unbelief. Men who have hardened their hearts by their own will to the extent that they simply will not believe regardless of what they have seen or heard. Peter was exceedingly curious to know who the betrayer was. Verse 22 says, Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. 
Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. The reason why Peter was so curious, we don't really know. Perhaps he thought back to walking on the Sea of Galilee where he was walking on that tempestuous sea to Jesus and he began to sink because he took his eyes off of Christ. Perhaps he was understanding his own capacity for failure at this point and he was afraid that maybe it was him. But perhaps more likely, he was wondering which other, other guy it would be that would betray Jesus. Now, I think this for two reasons. First is, this is human tendency, is it not? It's human tendency to wonder which other guy is going to do wrong because you're not going to do it. No way would I ever do that. No way would I ever go down that path. No way would I ever... We oftentimes sell our hearts short. We oftentimes feel like we're quite a bit better than we really are. But there's another reason as well. And we'll see that at the end of the passage today. Peter reflects a pretty high confidence in his own devotion to Jesus Christ. And we'll see Jesus Christ respond to that as we finish our time this evening. So Peter leans over to John, as we just read, and asked him, John being the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who was lying on his bosom, and said, John, can you find out who it is of whom Jesus is speaking? Who is this one who will betray him? Jesus Christ answers, In verse 26, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. That would be a piece of bread. The Hebrew custom was to take bread and they would not cut bread and butter it like we would do today. As many customs do, as many cultures do, they would tear from a loaf, they would dip in an oil, generally speaking, and then they would eat the bread that way. And he said, whoever it is that I dip in and who I give, that would be the one. Now at the time, the disciples don't understand this, even as he spoke it to John. Verse 27 says, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Perhaps John had not been able to tell the other disciples yet, or perhaps they just could not understand exactly what Jesus Christ was speaking of, but they didn't get the sign. They didn't understand that Judas would be the one, because as Jesus Christ turns to Judas and he says, That thou do, do quickly, the disciples didn't know what Jesus was telling Judas. They assumed, according to the testimony of Scripture here, Verse 28, Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him, for some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And so they just assumed that Jesus Christ was commanding Judas to go out and do something with money, something they'd already talked about before. They thought, well, maybe as Jesus was heading into the city, he said, hey, Judas, at some point I'm going to command you to... Go give some money to the poor. At some point, I'm going to command you, here's my shopping list for the Passover. If you could please go get these things because you hold the money. And so they figured they'd already discussed this. Jesus Christ told them to do this. He knew exactly what Jesus Christ was saying and he went off. That's exactly what Judas did. Verse 30, he then, having received the sop, went immediately out and it was night. So Satan has entered into the heart of Judas, has compelled him to betray Jesus Christ. 
Jesus has told him that thou doest, do quickly, go and get it done. Let's do this, it's my time. And now Jesus was in the upper room with eleven men. All of whom, according to Jesus Christ's own testimony, were clean. They were believers. And now that the unbeliever was free from their midst, now that he was no longer a part of this, Jesus Christ speaking exclusively to those eleven who were his disciples, who were believers, he has something very important to tell them. A new commandment. And also, the means by which the world would know that they are disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, there are certain elements of society that are completely distinguishable due to certain characteristics that they have. When my wife and I lived in Pensacola, Florida, we experienced this quite regularly. Pensacola, we were there just uh, this past uh, about a week and a half ago. We were down in Pensacola, Florida. Not much has changed there since we left. Pensacola is a Navy town. Now, my wife and I, on a Friday night or a Saturday or whenever the case would be, usually not on a Friday night or Saturday, we tried to avoid the town on Friday nights and Saturdays, but when we would go out, we would uh, see many people out shopping, out going to restaurants, those sorts of things. And perhaps on a weekend, we would go out to eat or whatever the case may be, and we would see small groups of men walking around. We would see these groups of men, and these men would look very similar. They would all have short haircuts. They would all uh, be free of facial hair. They would all be fit men. Many of these men would have tattoos. Now, when we saw these groups, my wife and I would never look at them and say, I wonder who those guys are. I wonder what they're doing. See, because we knew exactly who they were. We knew exactly what they were doing. These were Navy seamen. They were off base, perhaps for the weekend. And they were out enjoying themselves, maybe getting some shopping done, going to restaurants, whatever the case may be. They weren't in uniform, but they were entirely distinguishable. We knew exactly what they were because of how they looked, because of those distinguishing characteristics, the short hair, the fitness, the clean shaven, those sorts of things. As Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment in John 13, he will state a similar principle about his own disciples. That the condition upon which others will know who we are and who we serve will be based upon our actions and our characteristics. Just like those Navy men could be pointed out by how they acted and how they looked, so too the actions and characteristics of Christ's disciples will clearly point them out to the world. So this evening... We're going to look at three lessons regarding Jesus Christ's design, commandment for His disciples from John chapter 13. We've summarized a few of the verses. The points will be from verses 31 through 38. And the first lesson that we will learn is this. In verses 31 through 33, Jesus is gone, but you are still here. Jesus is gone, but you are still here. Jesus' time had come. Judas had departed to betray Him into the hands of the Jews. Jesus had instituted the Lord's table already. A memorial of His death. Soon, they would venture together to the Garden of Gethsemane, after which Jesus would be taken, be tried, 
and be crucified. As the time of Jesus' great sacrifice approached, he reminds his disciples of a much larger picture than just that small little room in which they were. Jesus reminds them that it's not simply about him dying, which they don't even quite understand yet. It's about Jesus Christ being glorified by God and conversely, God being glorified by Jesus Christ. It's about God's divine and sovereign plan from eternity past beginning an entirely new dispensation and ushering in God's plan for the ages. And so we see in verse 31, Jesus Christ says, Therefore, when He was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God be glorified in Him, God shall also glorify Him in Himself and shall straightway glorify Him. God's mercy God's love, God's grace, God's holiness, God's wrath, God's justice, God's jealousy, God's goodness, God's greatness, all that God is, the sum total of His character would converge in a matter of hours upon the cross of Calvary through and upon Jesus Christ for the salvation of all mankind. The salvation which you and I hold so dear to our hearts today. And so as Jesus humbly submits Himself to God and to God's plan, God is glorified. Jesus Christ is glorified in Him and through Him. Then Jesus tells the disciples something that would both startle them and trouble them. You remember back in John 8, Jesus had interacted with the woman taken in adultery. The beginning of John 8 at the Feast of Tabernacles about six months prior to where we find ourselves now in John 13. And Jesus declared Himself to be the light of the world. He announced that if any man would follow Him, he would not walk in darkness, but he would have the light of life. And within this chapter, Jesus warned the Jews and the Pharisees that this light would not be with them forever. That He would go away. And in John 8, verse 14, also in verse 21, He told these men, Whither I go, ye cannot come. The Jews were confused at the time. Where would He go that we can't come? Where would He go that we can't follow? Is He going to go and preach to the the Jews scattered abroad throughout the lands? Is He going to flee from Judea and from Galilee? In John 13, He tells His disciples the very same thing. Look what He says in verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek Me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, that was in John 8, by the way, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. I told them before, whither I go, ye cannot come. Now it's my turn to tell you. See, the disciples thought, we're always going to follow Jesus. We're always going to be in His shadow. We're just going to keep walking where He goes. And Jesus, in John 8, it was not the time. Jesus was evangelizing the world, so He didn't. He told the Jews that He was going somewhere where they couldn't come. That Jesus Christ was going to say the same thing to them. And here we are in John 13, and He says, the same thing I told the Jews, it's my turn to tell you, that whither I go, ye cannot come. But Jesus was doing something very specific as He announced His departure from those 11 men. 
He was trying to show them that just because they could not follow Him physically on the journey that He was going to take as He would die, rise from the dead, and then ascend up to the Father, this did not mean that they could not follow Him spiritually. That they could not follow His example. That they could not yet walk in His footsteps. Just because they would not physically be with Him did not mean that they could not be His disciples. And so Jesus Christ had a commandment to leave with them. This would be a commandment that would enable them to reflect the person of Jesus Christ in their own lives. One that would enable the light of the world to shine through them. Because Jesus knew that He needed to leave this earth, but He also knew that His disciples were going to stay. And they would continue the work that He began. See, Jesus is gone. Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven nearly 2,000 years ago. But you are here. I am here. Disciples of Jesus Christ are still here. And the work of Jesus Christ still needs to be done. Jesus is gone, but you are here. Second lesson, look with me. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus Christ has made you His reflection. Jesus Christ has made you His reflection. Look with me at verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Jesus states in this verse that He has given them a new commandment. This word, new, in the Greek has the idea of something fresh, something different, something that has not been given before. It was used to speak of that which was still young, that which was still strong sometimes, that which was fresh. A new commandment. Jesus is about to call these men to something radically different than anything they had ever been asked to do before. He's about to call them to a way of life so distinct from anything else in the world and so different from the human nature that resided within them that all men would immediately know when they saw it that its source was divine. And this commandment I just read to you in verse 34. Love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Jesus, in John 13, has just washed the disciples' feet. He has just shown unto them the very pinnacle, the very epitome of humble service one to another. And now His example is expressed in a commandment that is so simple that... All can understand its expression, but so difficult in its application that outside of God, no man can accomplish it. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Let's think about this for a moment. How has Jesus Christ loved these men? Well, Jesus Christ has patiently endured their lack of knowledge, their misguided zeal. He has lovingly guided them in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of their ignorance, in the midst of their lack of understanding, oftentimes in the midst of their lack of listening. Jesus has provided for their every need as they have followed Him. Jesus has taught them. He has cared for them. 
He has guided them. He has even rebuked them. But it would go much farther in just a few moments, in just a few hours. Jesus Christ would suffer for them, would die for them, would give His life for them. But more than just the physical suffering, as He knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and asked God that this cup would pass from Him, the cup that Jesus Christ was begging to have passed from Him was the cup of the wrath of God that would be poured down upon Him. The very wrath of God for the sin of the entire world that would be placed on Jesus Christ to the very extent that God the Father Himself must turn His eyes away from His Son. The first time in the history of eternity that God the Father and God the Son were separated in fellowship. And Jesus Christ said, As I have loved you, love also one another. Love one another as I have loved you. But then he goes one step farther in this commandment, reflecting to them why. He says in verse 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. When you love one another, you will be a reflection of Jesus Christ. When you love one another, you will reflect Him. Whenever I think of the idea of being a reflection, I always think of the moon. I love going out on a clear night and looking at the moon. I love how bright it is. I love its beauty. I love its contrast against the darkness of the night. But as you look at the moon, now the stars around them, they emit a light of their own. But when you look at the moon, the moon emits no light. The moon is not a light source in and of itself. The only way in which you and I can ever see the moon is when the sun is reflecting off of it. And so there are nights, even days, where we don't see the moon. When the moon is eclipsed as the moon goes behind the earth and you can't see the moon because the earth is blocking the light of the sun from hitting the moon. And the moon disappears in the night sky because it is no longer reflecting the sun. Now it's still a moon. The moon is still there. It didn't disappear. It just can't be seen anymore. Jesus Christ tells us that this is how men will know that we are His disciples when we love one another. When we reflect Christ's love, people see us as His disciple. When we don't reflect Jesus' love, now that doesn't mean we're not saved, just because we've stopped reflecting His love, but people would never know it, would they? People would never know that we're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we look at a world around us, a world 
where so many people are claiming to be disciples of Jesus Christ? What's the true proof that we would love one another? Now, what does it mean to love one another? Well, Jesus Christ taught numerous times in the Scriptures about what it means. We would also uh, be able to see it throughout the epistles. One of the wonderful teachings of Jesus Christ on this subject is found in Luke 10, 25-37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We referenced it not too long ago. The point of this parable was to show that the man who loved was not the man who simply pitied the one in need, not the man who regarded the one in need, not the one who saw the one in need and thought, I'll pray for that man, but the one who helped the one in need. We do not show love. We do not reflect the love of Jesus Christ. We do not really love by good intentions. We love through actions. Proverbs 27, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. John 15, 13, we'll see that. In a couple of weeks, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Love. Love can be tricky. Love can be difficult. Love has so many different applications. As we sit here today, loving one another would mean humility, would mean deference, would mean what we learned about last time, Jesus Christ washing the feet of the disciples. He says, as I have done to you, you do unto others. Humbly submit yourself. Be the least. Be the servant of all. But you know, as I think about what we do on Thursday nights as we go door knocking, as I think about what we do when we interact with our co-workers, when we interact with our unsaved siblings, when we interact with our unsaved relatives, all of these people that we're interacting with that are unbelievers, We do not believers when we watch them walk down a path to a sinner's hell without telling them that there's a solution. We do not love fellow believers when we see sin in one another's lives and we don't want to offend them so we don't tell them that they need to remove it. We do not love men when we hide the truth and allow them to live a lie. This is not love. And this is not what Jesus Christ did. Now we are careful. We're tactful. We understand the society and the culture in which we live. We approach men understanding ways that they will be offended and not doing those things necessarily. But I fear too often, and I'm preaching to myself here, we fail to love one another. We fail to serve one another, both positively and negatively. And what I mean by that is we fail to serve and love one another by deference, by counting what another would desire above that which we would, by giving of ourselves, our time, our energies, our monies, by perhaps deferring to the weaker brethren in a matter of conscience regarding sin and faith and practice. But I fear as well that we oftentimes fail to love the unbeliever as Christ loved them. By going out and telling them of their need. 
by ensuring that those who we speak to have heard the gospel. For Jesus Christ said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. The very pinnacle of the mindset of love ought to bring us to a place where we are willing to lay down our lives for one another. Where we are willing to bear any burden, to shoulder any weight, to carry any load. Where we rejoice with those who rejoice. Where we weep with those who weep. Romans 12, verse 15. When you as a Christian, and when we as a church become this, then we are reflecting Jesus Christ. And all the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. See, Jesus is gone, but you are still here. Jesus has made you His reflection. Third and finally this evening, Jesus expects that His nature will be manifest in you. Jesus expects that His nature will be manifest in you. As we finish this chapter in verses 36-38, through 38, the attention turns to Simon Peter, as sometimes it does. Jesus, excuse me, Peter is still somewhat stuck on this idea of Jesus going away. And so Simon Peter asks Jesus in verse 36, Lord, whither goest thou? And Jesus answers him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter was sure already that his love had reached the pinnacle of Jesus' expectations. He was pretty sure already that he had come to the point where he could conform himself to this new commandment that Jesus Christ had given. And so Jesus tells him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus, I've already got this commandment down. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend, Jesus Christ would say in John 15. Jesus Christ would say that the pinnacle of you showing yourself as my disciple is when you do as I have done. And Peter says, look, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. I've got this love thing for you down. What Peter was doing here is the exact opposite of what Jesus was commanding. Say, but pastor, wait a minute. I thought you just said that being willing to lay down one's life is the very pinnacle of love. Is the very pinnacle of Jesus' teaching. What do you mean Peter is doing the opposite of what Jesus Christ was teaching here? Notice carefully the distinction between what Peter is doing here in verse 36 and what Jesus Christ commanded them to do. Jesus Christ commanded them to love one another as a disciple. As a reflection of Jesus Christ, they were to love one another. See, Peter thought he had what it took within himself to fulfill this new commandment. Jesus said, love one another, and Peter said, I can do that. Yes, I will love my fellow disciples. Yes, I love Jesus. I've got that down, Jesus. Check that one off the list. What's next? But see, he didn't have it down. He wasn't even close. 
And notice how Peter respond, how Jesus responded to Peter in verse 38. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. See, it is not enough for you, it is not enough for me to say, yep, I love my brother. Yep, we love one another. Yep, I've got you. I hear you, pastor. I'm good. Looking forward to what you have to tell me next week. We're all set on this one. When you know that you are reflecting Jesus Christ, like the moon reflects the sun, when you know you are reflecting Jesus Christ is not when you finally are walking around in a suit and a tie with that King James Bible under your arm. It's not when you are reading the Bible every morning and praying every day. Now these are good things. I'm not discouraging you from doing these things. But when you know you are a reflection of Jesus Christ is when you cannot help but love those around you. Is when you are compelled to reflect Jesus Christ in love to this world. When you are compelled to tell others about Christ. When you are compelled to show others how they can be better disciples of Jesus Christ. When what we learned about this morning in Sunday school about discipleship, about taking people from where they are in their relationship with Jesus Christ and making them more like Christ. When your mindset, when your devotion, when your passion, when your desire is to see people become like Christ, to become like Christ yourself and to win others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, this is when you know that you are reflecting Jesus Christ. You know that you are a reflection of Jesus Christ when you are compelled to spend and be spent for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know you are a reflection of Jesus Christ when every ounce of your heart is consumed with accomplishing the will of God on earth. And this is Jesus Christ saying, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. In a matter of hours, Jesus' prophecy of Peter's actions would come to pass. Jesus will be taken. Peter will view from afar off. And as those would question him about his relationship to Jesus Christ, he will deny that he even knows who Jesus Christ is. And as your pastor stands before you today, I say, yep, I would never do that in my heart. But the Spirit testifies to me that maybe I'm not quite as devoted to God as I think I am. Maybe I'm not quite where I ought to be. And as we learn this lesson from John 13, By God's grace, there's no one in this room that will have to have a Peter experience to realize that he's not as devoted as he ought to be to Christ. But it might very well be that there must be a Peter experience where we would say, God, I would never do that, only to find out that we do do that when push comes to shove. But see, the Word of God 
gives us a tremendous opportunity. As we learn the lessons from the men who have gone before us, we can look into the Word of God. We can see ourselves in light of who God is, in light of God's perfect will for us, and we can, as the Scriptures tell us, judge ourselves lest we be judged, 1 Corinthians 11. This world will not know that we are Jesus' disciples because we say we love one another. They will know that we are Jesus' disciples when we truly do love one another. When you go to work, the world will know you are a disciple of Jesus Christ when you express and exhibit that love. When you're at school, your classmates will know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ when you exhibit love. When you are at church, your fellow church members will know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ when you exhibit love. Because that is how the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Now down in Pensacola, I could always tell when a Navy guy walked by. He looked like a Navy man. He acted like a Navy man. There was no mistaking him. Ten times out of ten, I could go up to that guy and ask him if he's in the Navy, and he would say yes. When people interact with you, when a person leaves a conversation with you, would they know that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, I know that there's times when you're interacting with men and women where you cannot give them the gospel. I understand that, and I'm not telling you you need to force it down everyone's throat every time you interact with them. But are you exhibiting the characteristics of Christ-like love in your interactions with men and women in this world? Are you exhibiting the characteristics of Christ-like love one to another? Does Christ's reflection shine brightly in you? So brightly, in fact, that people cannot help but see Christ in you. Or could people end a conversation with you, leave your house, walk out of this very church, not knowing that we are disciples of Jesus Christ? It's quite a question. See, Jesus Christ gave a new commandment here. Something very different than anything they had ever heard before. Something very different than what their heart was telling them to do. It's not natural. It's divine. In fact, it's a reflection of the divine. For when we love one another, we are reflecting Jesus Christ in our lives.